0: Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane, learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at the power of patience, even in the fast-paced world of Formula One, and learning how to know when to compromise and when to be uncompromising. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. How Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's that's a failure. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons Podcast. As ever, thank you so much for joining wherever you are in the world, however it is you're listening, whatever it is you're up to whilst listening to this. I appreciate every single one of you. I really do. It's currently 10.30pm on Sunday evening before I release this episode, assuming I get it finished, at 6am on Monday morning, tomorrow morning, as I do every week, 6am on a Monday. Uh, That means it's very late, and the reason it's very late for me recording this podcast is because... I have had a crazy busy weekend, in fact a crazy busy week, but the weekend I spent at the Silverstone Classic. It's a huge event at the Grand Prix circuits with the classic car community coming together, classic car racing happening, some historic Formula One cars, historic touring cars, and everything in between. We did a little bit of filming for Wheeler Dealers. In fact, we wrapped a brand new series of Wheeler Dealers, which you'll see on your screens in just a couple of weeks' time. The 12th of September on the Discovery Channel, a brand new series of Wheeler Dealers coming your way. So keep an eye out for that. So we finished that off this weekend as well, which is a great celebratory moment. But the Silverstone Classic for Mike Brewer and I is a mad weekend. It's a crazy busy weekend because... Together we host the main stage at Silverstone for the weekend. We run a series of car clinics, we bring uh, a bunch of the old Wheeler Dealers cars back, we bring them out in front of huge crowds, we bring the owners of those cars out as well, we uh, talk to them about the cars, about about the process, about the experience of being part of Wheeler Dealers, We engage with the audience. We get questions coming in. We have a wonderful time, but it's really busy. We meet the people who watch our show, and I'm not trying to be big-headed about this at all, because this is a brand new experience, really, for me. It's one that I'm still trying to get my head around, but there are huge queues of people queuing up to meet us, to take photos with us, to get cards and books signed, and to come and ask questions and to just generally come and say hello and give us feedback, almost always positive, I have to say, on the show that we spend so much of our lives making. But for Mike and I, it's an almost overwhelming experience. It's full of positivity. It's one that we love, of course, but we get absolutely no time. We've been pulled from pillar to post to go and see these people, to go and see these people, to shake hands with these people, get a picture, sign autographs. With these queues of people literally forming out of nowhere. And it's a sort of window into the world of celebrity, if you like, which is never something that's been sat comfortably with me. It's never something I've ever dreamt of having or being part of. It's never been something that I've set out to try and achieve. It's something that has come along as a byproduct of being part of this enormous show that is the Wheeler Dealers world. It takes an enormous amount of energy. It sounds like a strange thing to say. And I'm exhausted sitting here on Sunday evening, having been through the entire weekend. It feels like a strange thing to say because you almost haven't done anything. All we're actually doing really is talking to people. It's engaging with people. It's saying hello to people, shaking hands, having a selfie here and there, signing things. That's not particularly physical work. I've had a job in the past many jobs that have been extremely physical, proper hard graft where you know you've done a good day's work because everything hurts, everything aches at the end of it. This one was all about giving out high energy to a number of people, to a lot of people, a huge number of people, where every time you meet somebody, I want to meet them with a positive energy, with an energy that for them feels like they're the first person that I've met all weekend. If they ask a question that I've may have already been asked a hundred times, I want to answer it like it's the first time I've been asked that question. Because for that other person, that's what shapes their experience. And one of my roles in this particular capacity is to try and deliver that for each of the people that we get to meet, which is lovely and it's great. And it takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, saps a lot from us. So at the end of that process, when you finally get to leave the circuit, as I did earlier this evening, I'm knackered. I'm exhausted. Whilst that was all fine, and I'm certainly not complaining, I loved the whole weekend. I really genuinely loved it. Of course, the other side of what's going on in the back of my mind is that, well, this is a Grand Prix weekend. This is the first Grand Prix weekend back after the summer break. It's a big one. For me, for somebody who follows the sport intently, who tries to cover every single lap and stay across every single story, try to be on top of everything that's happening. I like to get in touch with the people who I know in the pit lane. I like to get the inside scoop on so many different things. I like to talk to people constantly and also, of course, to constantly follow the coverage on television or on radio across the internet. I use our own Seedstream app to cover to follow every single piece of news that's going on, and that's the way I spend my normal Grand Prix weekend. It's become part of my normal life since leaving the team. I now absolutely immerse myself in whatever coverage is available, whatever news I can find, whichever means I can use to get on top of it and understand fully, as best I can, what's going on. When I can't do that, if for some reason that becomes difficult, it becomes a bit of a stress for me. It's something that I I, I worry about. It's something that I don't feel comfortable with because I know this thing's going on, and yet I can't quite follow it in my normal routine. And that, of course, is what happened this weekend. I was so immersed in what I was doing at the Silverstone Classic. I was so up to my eyes in this one part of my world. I wasn't able to give the same level of attention to the other part of my world, which was happening in Formula One. And over the weekend, as the weekend built, particularly as we got towards qualifying on Saturday afternoon, I could feel a sort of level of stress building in my mind, knowing that this big event was approaching. And yet I had an enormous schedule in front of me that gave me no opportunity to stop and follow the Formula 1 or to watch qualifying. It was even on some of the big screens at Silverstone when qualifying and then the race earlier today happened. But I was so busy, I just did not have time to even look up and see it. That's no exaggeration. That's how busy we've been. And I had this Dilemma because I didn't want to not fulfill my obligations at Silverstone. I didn't want to let the people that had turned up at Silverstone down who had come to be part of this event with us to meet us. But I also couldn't even bear the thought of not being able to follow the Grand Prix weekend, not understanding and knowing exactly what was going on when it was happening. And in the beginning, what I tried to do was do both i tried to follow the formula one i tried to get into my phone every few seconds just have a little look perhaps follow along on twitter follow some of the f1 news stories that were bubbling up in the Seedstream app the live coverage in terms of commentary i tried my best to dip in and out as best i could to keep up with it whilst also trying to do the best job i could at silverstone for the people that were there But what I quickly realised was that what I was actually doing in that sense was I wasn't doing a very good job of either of those things. I wasn't fully engaged with the people that I was meeting at Silverstone, with the roles that I had to fulfil. And I certainly wasn't fully immersed in the Formula One coverage. So actually, on both counts, I was kind of doing it half-hearted. And of course, the other option I had was to say, "Okay, well, listen, I'm not going to worry about the Formula One for now. I will go ahead and watch it tonight. When I get back to the hotel, I'll catch up. It's all recorded. It's all on my Sky Go. I can go in and watch it whenever I want. So we'll just do that this evening. But two things struck me in my mind whilst thinking about this whole process. One was the idea of waiting until later that evening was something that caused me a certain amount of anxiety anyway, because I didn't want to wait. I don't ever wait to watch Formula One. I watch it when it's happening almost every week. And if I do have to wait because of some other engagement, I will watch it straight away afterwards when I get home, or I'll watch it on my phone if I'm out somewhere. I can't bear to wait to watch it late because everyone else is watching it now, and I want to be part of that gang. When I want to have my finger on the pulse of Formula One. I don't want to be watching it hours after everyone else has watched it, when everyone's already tweeted about it, already discussed it, argued about it and dissected it. I want to be doing that as it's happening, not later. And the other thing was... That was also going to be a problem for me anyway, because when it comes to Saturday night, I had engagements that I had to go and attend when I'd finished working at the circuit. So that would still be difficult. It'd be really late at night by the time I got round to watching qualifying. And on Sunday, which is right now for me, I had to do the podcast. So when I got home, which is just about an hour ago... I'm now having to get into the podcast and I was thinking it's going to be really difficult for me to actually watch it on Sunday night. It might be Monday by the time I get around to watching this. I can't bear to wait till Monday to watch a Grand Prix. I had this anxiety, this stress kicking in because I wanted it now. Now, in the end, on Saturday afternoon, after much internal turmoil, caused by this anxiety kicking in around me not being able to completely follow Formula One and at the same time not being able to do the job that I was there to do at Silverstone, I made the decision, one that took me a while to come to terms with, I made the decision to ignore Formula One, to not take my phone out of my pocket, to not try and keep sneaking a peek at the big screens, to not leave my post or leave the engagement that I was part of to go and catch up with what had been going on I chose to park Formula One to put it to com- completely to one side and to fully embrace what I was doing in that moment at Silverstone to become ultra present in the moment at Silverstone so that I was completely engaged with the people that I was engaging with so they got the full experience of being part of the events that we were hosting, or this moment where they were meeting us. The interaction between myself and these people, I decided, was more important, because that's what I was there to do. It was way more important to make sure that I wasn't letting these people in front of me down for something that, in all reality, could wait. So as a result, as I speak to you right now at 10.30, nearly 11 o'clock on Sunday uh, evening, I haven't seen the Grand Prix and I won't see it until tomorrow. It'll be Monday by the time I get to watch it. But what I will do is I'll watch it fully. I'll watch it in full. I'm not going to skip through. I'm not going to do highlights. I'm not going to fast forward through the bits that I'm not that interested in. I will watch it on Monday as if I was watching it live. So I still get the same full experience. And as a result of that, of course, my experience at Silverstone was one that I was also able to fully enjoy, to fully be part of. And I hope that the people that were on the other end of that experience, from me, from my side, the other end of that engagement with me, I hope they got a good one. I hope they enjoyed their experience. I hope I was able to contribute something that's elevated their weekend a little more than it otherwise would. That's, of course, what always should have happened. But what surprised me about that decision-making process that my mind went through and this stress that it had caused me, the fact that that decision had become so difficult for me to make, caught me by surprise a little bit. I was surprised that I didn't just jump to what clearly was the right decision. I was surprised that I took so long to make that decision, that it caused me so much stress that actually I could have very easily fallen on the other side of that decision and made the wrong one. And I nearly did. And actually for quite some time, I probably did make the wrong decision in that set of circumstances. It caught me by surprise because I feel like I'm the sort of person that would always try to make the right decision. That would always try and put emotions and those kind of feelings of stress and anxiety to one side and have a clarity of thought that would allow me to go straight to the correct decision. What dawned on me, of course, afterwards was very few people are actually able to do that 100% of the time. In fact, I would imagine that nobody's able to do that 100% of the time. Because although I feel like I'm pretty good at making tough decisions when I have to, this one was one that I was emotionally engaged with. I made all kinds of internal excuses as to why I should be following the Formula One. I should be following the Grand Prix. I could justify it to myself over and over again. Yeah, this is my job. It's my career. There will be a lot of people across places like Twitter and Instagram that would be looking forward to my comments or my commentary, my feedback on the race. I always get a huge number of questions over the course of a Grand Prix weekend about what's going on, and it would have appeared that I wasn't answering those questions. I wasn't responding. It would have appeared as though I was actually just ignoring those questions, which is not something I ever do. I try my hardest to respond to every single person who ever sends me a message, who tweets me, DMs me, messages me on Instagram. Whatever it is, I will always try to give that person the time of day, having given that they have taken time to send me a message, I would always try, wherever possible, to respond to those messages. But if I'm not following the Grand Prix, if I haven't got the time to actually keep on top of what's going on, how on earth can I possibly answer questions about something that, in that moment, I've got no idea what they're talking about? So I could easily justify to myself that watching the race was hugely important. It had to be bumped up my priority list at the expense of the other things that I was committed to doing that weekend, things that would have definitely let other people down had I chosen to make that decision. But of course, reality was that I was being impatient. I didn't want to wait to watch the Grand Prix because I didn't want to wait to watch it. I wanted to know what happened. I wanted to be part of this gang of people, this culture of people, this community that I'm always part of watch it now i want to share i want to join in that community i want to share my thoughts and opinions on it now i want to do it now because it's on now i don't want to have to wait it was impatience my enjoyment of watching this race when i do get to watch it which will be tomorrow will still be the same i'll still enjoy the same race i'll still watch it as if it were live it'll just be a day later but because also i was so busy over the weekend I wasn't following on social media. I haven't had a half experience of Formula One. I don't know what people were talking about as the race was going on because I was so busy doing something else. The gratification that I will get when I watch that Grand Prix is just going to be a bit delayed. And that's absolutely fine because I still get the gratification. I'll still get to watch the race, which is ultimately what I wanted to do. And when I started thinking about it this evening on the way home, I'm thinking about my whole weekend, some of the thought processes that I went through, particularly this one, I started to think about this idea of the need for instant gratification in so many areas of our life today, as opposed to a number of years ago, maybe 10, 15, certainly 20 years ago, I think we were a more patient people. I think our younger generations today have grown up in a world, particularly the younger generation, grown up in a world where they want and also can have everything now. And I would class myself in part of that. Not necessarily that I'm the younger generation, but certainly I've grown up in a world, certainly in the latter part of my life, where we're able to have things instantly. And we now expect things instantly. We get Impatient, we get cross when we can't have things instantly. If we have to wait more than five minutes for a taxi to turn up, once we've clicked the little button in our app on our phone, we start to get cross. We start to become agitated and impatient because we want it now. When we go onto Amazon and we order something, we buy a product, we buy something that we're after, again, we're disappointed if it's not going to turn up tomorrow. If they can't deliver that one tomorrow, I'm probably going to skip over it, and I'm going to find another product similar to the one that I really want, but maybe not even quite as good, because I can get it. I can get it now. It'll turn up almost immediately, whereas the other products might have to wait a week for. It's the one that I want more, but I'm more likely to choose the one that will turn up tomorrow because it's quicker, because we're impatient. Instant messaging and social media has given us, well, just that, instant messaging, Uh, a message that we can send instantly and almost instantly, get a response back in most cases. We even get a little notification to let us know that somebody's read it. And that only heightens our expectation and our desire to get a response within seconds of them reading the message. We won't put our phone down. We won't get on with whatever task we had in hand because we're waiting expectantly for that reply to come through. We'll stare at our screen. We'll literally look at our phones, particularly when we start getting those little three dots, the three glowing dots to say that somebody's starting to type. Once we see that, we can't look away. We can't take our eyes off the screen because we want that response and we want it now. And we're expecting it. We can watch whatever we want on our televisions immediately. We can order food, we can order products, we can order taxis. Things will turn up incredibly quickly when we want them to turn up. And that's the world that we've become accustomed to. And it can be a great world. There's so much great stuff about that. There's so much convenience right there. But I believe it's also creating this habit where we have... Lost the ability to be patient. We've lost the ability to wait for something good to come our way because we just want it now. We haven't got time to hang on and sit back and build something slowly. We haven't got time to plant some seeds and watch them grow. We want to get the instant fulfillment of having created something. I see it in the entrepreneurial world of business, of building businesses. I see young people wanting to jump straight to the sort of end goal, which for them might be living a particular lifestyle, having enough money to live a lifestyle, aiming for a particular car or a big house, or aiming for this big moment where they sell the business, already thinking about that moment before they've even created the business, coming up with a plan that has an exit strategy already factored in within a short period of time. And whilst this is not to be confused with the idea of being ambitious, of setting big goals and big targets, targets that are difficult to achieve, but pay big in the end, big wins, there's nothing wrong with dreaming big and aiming for those big moments and big outcomes. I think the problem is that people are not willing to be patient to do that, to get to that place. And the problem with that is that if our focus is all about that end goal or that big win, what happens is, you know, you may well get there. But actually what typically happens is because your focus is not on the building process, because you've got this one eye on the finished product, on the end of this journey, you take that eye off what the moment, what's happening in the moment. You take your eye off what you should be focusing on the thing that you should be focusing on is the here and now because it's that that's going to build your business into a strong one it's going to create something that has value it's going to build something that in the end is going to be worth the money that you want to eventually sell the company for but that may well be a number of years down the line and we have to be comfortable with that being the way things are that's typical that's normal most entrepreneurs don't exit their companies for at least 10 years after they start them. Building a business takes time. Certainly, building a good business, building a business that somebody's willing to pay a lot of money for, takes time. And the reason it takes time is it needs 100% focus in the beginning. As an entrepreneur, nobody will be as focused on your company as you. And if you take your eye off the ball to focus on some way, something somewhere down the line, you're not focusing on the here and now. You're not making the mistakes that then lead to the learning that then enables you to perfect your craft. If you're not willing to be patient and play the long game, you will never go through this process of gradually understanding the industry you're in, gradually understanding the pitfalls of the business that you're in, making those mistakes, but then recovering from them and coming out the other side stronger. It's all of those elements that go into creating the valuable business that you might want to sell in the end. And the same process applies to anything that we want to do, any craft we want to get good at, any skill we want to learn. If we want to lose weight or get fit, it's going to take time. Despite all of those ridiculous adverts you might see popping up in your Instagram feed or on late night television, the adverts that say, you know, buy this product, it's going to give you a six pack in just six weeks. These things don't exist. You don't lose five stone in weight by following some crazy internet-based six-week plan that costs you a fortune to sign up to. It doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is... Losing five stone in weight takes time, it takes commitment, it takes consistency. The only way you're able to deliver consistency is by taking your time and doing things repeatedly, over and over and over and over, practicing them. If you want to lose that five stone in weight, and importantly, if you want to do it healthily, and if you want that five stone to stay off and not just come straight back on again at the end of that six weeks... You've got to create habits. You've got to create healthy habits, a healthy way of living. And creating habits is something that happens over a long period of time. I mean, literally, the science says we cannot install a new habit until we've done it for 21 to 66 days. It's different for every person. It's different for every situation. It's going to be somewhere between 21 days and 66 days for you to lock in a habit, and that, by the way, is getting the habit locked in. That's not losing the of stone. Getting the habit locked in is what then allows you to consistently deliver that healthy way of living, those healthy eating habits that you're now creating for yourself. And over time then, when you start living your life, using these healthy ways of living, these healthy habits, only then will you gradually start to see the weight drop off. If you combine that with habits around exercise, the process may be a little bit quicker, but it becomes sustainable. Because it's now a habit, you do it every single day or every single week. And once it is a genuine habit, you can't not do it. It becomes easier to do it than it is not to do it. That's what a habit is. It's something that you have to work not to do because it's now a habit. So if your habits are good, if they're healthy, if they're positive, Of course, that's exactly what we want to achieve those kind of goals in our life. But the gratification that comes from all of those changes we make is delayed. Delayed gratification is something that we should all be more comfortable with. There is nothing wrong. In fact, there's an awful lot right with delaying our gratification. Actually, when that gratification comes, it can feel so much more fulfilling so much more worthwhile. We get such a sense of achievement out of it because we've had to work to achieve it in the first place, because we've spent time on it. We've done it in the right way. We didn't cut corners. We didn't try and jump straight to the end goal. We worked through the problems and challenges that were along the way. In doing so, we perfected the methods and techniques that are gonna allow us to get to that end goal and we delivered the end products, we delivered the end service, the end goal, whatever it is we're trying to achieve in this, we delivered it in the correct way. To do that, we need patience. And the problem with the other side of that coin, the problem with searching for instant gratification in life, in business, whatever it is, instant gratification On occasions may work. For some people, they might get lucky. They might strike gold. They might hit a wonderful idea. They might be in the right place at the right time. They might make an investment that happens to deliver an incredible return in an incredibly short space of time. But those moments are rare. Those are lucky occasions that are highly unlikely to be repeatable. And part of the problem when you have a big win like that, when you have something that gives you that instant gratification, even though it may just have been a massive stroke of luck, is that you want it again. Because it worked last time, you think you can do it over and over again. It's very unusual for somebody to have a huge amount of luck twice in a row. If you're gambling and you get a big winner, it's highly unlikely you're gonna win next time out or the time after that. But of course, that's exactly why the bookies always win when it comes to gambling. Because if you had the big win, you want to go and do it again. That was easy money. Just look how quickly we made a load of cash. Look, that last bet, the horse we bet on, it came in. It was a back market. It was an unlikely winner, but it won for us and it made us a fortune. So now we've done it once. Let's do it again. It's not sustainable. And you can apply that same ethos to so many areas of our lives and our businesses, our companies, even our relationships. We want instant gratification when it comes to relationships through things like sex. People want sex really early in a relationship. Kids, I'm sure, want sex really early in their lives. But actually, if we're willing to wait, if we're willing to grow with somebody, with a partner, if we're willing to allow that process to play out the way it plays out, be patient with each other until both parties in a relationship are ready, then that sex is probably going to be a much better experience in the end. Even the act of sex itself, I'm sure, is way too often rushed. Whereas actually the best sexual encounters, I have no doubt, are the ones that are patient, that allow the process to build gradually without this desperate need to jump to the big moment at the end. That moment will be there, but if you take the time over it, if you enjoy the process, enjoy the journey of getting there, not just the bit at the end, the whole experience takes on a, an entirely new level. And if we want to bring this back with some kind of Formula One reference, of course, we have the same kind of theory playing into our race strategies It's very easy to look at the start of the Grand Prix and think we need to make up places immediately. We need to get as aggressive as possible early on. We need to make up as many places as possible. We need to get elbows out at the start. We need to make every last ditch overtake we possibly can because those places we can gain can translate into points and prizes. Whereas actually some of the best race strategies, in fact, all of the best race strategies take into account the entirety of a Grand Prix. We don't just focus on the start or one bit. We have to look at the big picture and we have to think about the entire journey between the lights going out and the checkered flag dropping. And sometimes that means being very, very patient. It can be frustrating sometimes for a driver. We even hear some drivers getting frustrated on the radio because they want that instant gratification. They want to be fighting the people around them. They want to be making the overtakes. They want to be pushing and showing people what they can do. They don't want to be sitting back, to be allowing the fight to play out in front of them and just holding back, holding a bit of performance back, saving some tyres, saving some fuel for a fight that may well come later in the race, or a strategy that may well play out to suit you in the closing laps of that Grand Prix when others have destroyed their tyres, when they've used too much fuel and they're having to now lift and coast towards the end of the race. It might be a strategy that allows you to stay out of trouble early on, to sit back if you're out of position in a Grand Prix, a little bit like I think it happened today. We saw a couple of top drivers towards the back of a race. Sometimes in those situations, being patient, which is a difficult thing to do when you know you've got a faster car than the people around you, being patient can allow the field just to stretch out a little bit to give you the space you might need to then go on the attack rather than get caught up in a melee at the start in amongst the back, part, back markers, right in the middle of the pack where it's dangerous, where people are being aggressive. And if you're caught up in the middle of that, your race can be over sitting back just a little bit, watching what happens around you, letting the race settle down and then you go into attack mode. Then you start applying the performance that you've got in your car and you pick them off one by one. That's a good long-term strategy. That's a good race strategy. It may not look as spectacular in the opening laps. It might not feel as aggressive. It might feel counterintuitive as a racing driver sometimes when you have performance, but you've been asked to hold it back a little bit. That happens a lot because the team have to look at the bigger picture quite often than the driver does. The driver's looking at the cars around him. He's got its inbuilt need, this innate passion to race wheel to wheel and move past the people around them. But if they were just allowed to go and do that, to have that instant gratification of making overtakes and fighting and getting embroiled in battles at every stage of a race, they're going to quickly destroy their car. They're going to ruin their tyres. They might get bits broken off the car in that melee, in that fight. Whereas if they're able to show a little bit of patience, a little bit of an understanding of the long game, that long game may well come to suit them, to play out to their advantage towards the end of a Grand Prix. We all know that famous story of the tortoise and the hare. And so the upshot of all of this is that I will watch the Grand Prix. It will be tomorrow. It'll be the Monday, the day after the Grand Prix actually happened, but I will enjoy it. And almost certainly I'll enjoy it more than I would have done if I was just gathering glimpses of what was going on, of dipping in and out of Twitter to get my news updates. I may well have known the results at the time. I may well have had a much more up-to-date experience, but that experience would have been half-hearted. It would have not been the full experience. I would not have enjoyed the Grand Prix to the same level that I know I will when I sit down and watch the whole thing from start to finish, with me being fully focused in that moment. Fully focused on the Grand Prix. And that's the other point to this whole story here, because this dilemma, internal dilemma that I went through of wondering whether I should compromise two things so that I could get a little bit of both, watching the Grand Prix and giving this sort of half assed experience to the people that I was working with at Silverstone, was exactly that. It was a compromise, Yes, I may well have got my instant gratification of seeing the Grand Prix as it happened, of following along, of understanding what was happening, when it happened, of getting updates in the moment. Although I would have got that side of things, I would have been doing it through a lower level experience than I really wanted. But even worse than that, the other thing that I was supposed to be doing The thing that I was there for the entire weekend for, the purpose of me being at Silverstone, would equally have been compromised. So I would have ended up doing two things badly purely to get hold of one thing when I wanted it, instantly. And this, I think, is almost another lesson in itself. This idea, which I'm sure we've all been through, we must all go through regularly because we've all got so much on our plates every single day. Our lives are busy Our lives are filled with work, with children, with family, with homes and houses, with cars, with the general trials and tribulations of modern day life. How many things have we got on our job list that all need doing now? How many people are asking us for something now? How do we get the kids dinner ready while still answering the emails that are still flying into my inbox from work? How do I take the leap and start that business I've been dreaming of starting for so long, but while still holding down my full-time job that's going to help me transition through this period to becoming a business owner, to becoming an entrepreneur? Who's going to pay the bills if I ditch the job to focus on the startup? These are genuinely difficult situations that people face every single day all around the world. And there may well never be an easy answer to many of those challenges, to many of those situations. But I think what we so often try and do is we don't commit to one or the other. We try so often to do everything and in doing so we do it all at a lower level than we could do rather than committing to fewer things and being able to focus on those fewer things to a much higher standard delivering something that's at a much higher level. I know that I am and have been guilty of this on many occasions myself. Even very recently, I think I've mentioned this before, I've been trying to do too many things in my professional life. I have a lot of commitments through the various businesses that I'm involved in, through the filming with Wheeler Dealers, my own YouTube channel, which I've loved doing, has had to take a back seat for that very reason. I cannot simply maintain them all at the standard that I would only be happy to maintain them at. And if I can't keep them to that standard, well, I've had to take some pretty tough decisions and and either let some of these things go or at least put them on hold for now, give them a bit of a back seat in the priority list. That saying quality over quantity is kind of what I'm talking about here. If we want quality and we want to maintain quality at a level that's, that's high, a high performance level. And look, that's the very basis of this entire podcast. It's aiming for high performance in all areas of our lives. It's the ethos that Formula One is built on. It's what I've been brought up on through my time in Formula One. Everything has to be at a very, very high level. Now, I know that that's not going to be for everybody, and I'm not trying to preach something here that everybody has to follow. Everybody's an individual, everybody has their own standards of working, they've got their own challenges in life and I'm certainly not saying that you have to get rid of some things in your life and do some things at a higher standard. That won't be the way that everybody needs to or wants to live their lives. But if we're aiming for high performance and that's a priority for us, if that's an important part of our value system or of our belief system that what we do should be done at incredibly high standard, and that's my belief for me personally, then I know personally that I'm not going to be able to deliver that incredibly high standard that I want over a huge number of different things in my life that all compete for the same limited amount of time. And if that equation comes down to that, quality over quantity, a number of things that I want to focus on over an amount of time that I have available to me, if that's the equation that I'm looking at, I need to change one or two of those factors. I need to change the numbers somewhere. The time factor, I can't change. I've got a set number of hours in every single day. I've got a set number of days every week and a number of days every year. I can't change that. So the only thing that becomes under my control that I can change is what I want to try and achieve within that time, how many things I want to achieve. Now, if you are an entrepreneur, particularly one that's in the early phase of a new startup project, you might listen to that and you might be saying, well, I can't cut back on things. There's a certain number of things that just have to happen. And because it's my company, because I'm the business owner, because I'm the founder, there's no one else going to do it. There's no money in the company at this point to employ other people to help me here. It all falls on my shoulders. And if I want this to work, I've just got to kind of make it happen. I've got to get off my backside. And I've got to work all the hours available to me. And I've still got to deliver all of these different things. And I completely get that. And there's a huge amount of truth in that. When you're going through a startup phase of any business, it's hard. It takes an enormous amount of hard graft and of compromise, of sacrifice. Absolutely. But what you have to ask yourself is what level of quality, what standards do I need to achieve with all of these things? And actually, yes, of course, there's a set number of things we might have to just do. And if no one else can do them, it might all fall on my plate. But if I deliver all of those things at a lower standard that I'm happy with, what's that going to do to the long term prospects of this business? And might it be more beneficial to extend the time frame that I'm looking at for this startup? Maybe I'm not going to hit my six month original target. Maybe whatever I'm trying to achieve, I might need to extend that now to nine months to give me a little bit more scope, a little bit more space to still do the same number of things, but to up the level or up the quality, to up the standards that I do them to. And perhaps in the long run, that's going to be more beneficial to me. Patience. In some cases, you may not need to do that. It may not be something that needs an incredibly high standard at this stage. And actually, there might be more benefit in just getting them done, getting these things out there, starting the process, churning through it. Yes, you may not have the same level of focus that somebody else might have on their business, But for your business, maybe the benefit is just getting on with it, learning on the job, making the mistakes, failing, then trying again, failing again, probably. But just getting on with it could be the thing that works for your company. What I'm trying to say is, it's understanding what those priorities are for you. What's the most important thing to your business? What's the most important thing within your company? within your job description, within your relationships? What are the priorities that you should be setting aside a certain amount of time to focus on, to get to a high standard? That could be figuring out the level of attention you're willing to give to your partner. How much of your time are you willing to dedicate to your time together? As parents of young children in particular, we have huge demands on our time. We have responsibilities to teach those children the ways of the world, to educate them, but also to instill values and beliefs that we feel we will be comfortable with them living their lives by. It can be a draining process when they fight back, when our children become difficult and challenging. It's really easy sometimes to take the easy option to get some instant gratification by not pulling them up on behaviors and actions that don't align with the way we want them to live their lives. Allowing certain behaviors and actions to go unchallenged, uncontested, to go uncorrected because it makes our lives a little bit easier in that moment. Allowing some bad manners to pass through rather than stop, pull them up on it, bring them back. Explain what was wrong, explain how things should be done, why they should be done this certain way, teach them to do it. It all takes time. It probably takes time that we feel we haven't got in that moment. It will take time away from something else that we might feel we have to do. It's instant gratification for us, it's peace. Whereas actually, in the long run, it's almost certainly not the right decision. We all do it. We've all done it so many times. And every now and again, of course, it's absolutely fine. But if we give up that fight, if we give up that draining, challenging fight that we often have with our children to correct behaviours, to install behaviours that we think are the right ones, that we want our children to live by, the long-term effects of that will almost certainly be negative. What I'm trying to say with all this is that trying to do too many things not only can introduce stress, it can introduce things like burnout in the long run. It can put us under enormous pressure. It can affect our health and our well-being, which has its own knock-on negative effects even further down the line. But the more immediate impact on all of these things of trying to do too much trying to do too many things too quickly, trying to rush a process, is that in almost all cases, those things that we're trying to do all get compromised. Because we're not focused enough on a small number of things, we spread ourselves too thinly. We try and rush through things, which means every element of what we're trying to do gets done to a lower standard than we should be able to do it to gets done to a lower standard than other people might expect from us. And when that starts to happen, other people begin to form opinions of us. We start to get reputations, reputations that might not be the ones that we want. They might not be the ones we feel we deserve. But if other people are noticing a lowering of standards, a drop in performance, and if that continues over time, that reputation will begin to instill itself within the people around us the people that work with us, our clients, our customers, in terms of business, if our customers start to notice a drop in standards very quickly, that can have an enormous negative impact on our business. In the same way, in our personal lives, if people start to think of us as those people who cut corners, who don't do things properly, who can't be relied upon to the same level, it starts to affect those relationships. We've had examples of this in the Formula One world many times over the years. I can think of more recent cases at McLaren where people have started to judge McLaren's performance level as having tailed away a little bit. They were on this trajectory heading back towards the front of the grid and they've stuttered. In recent times, their performance has tailed away. They've struggled. Particularly this year, it's been a tough season for them in a number of different areas. And I've seen lots of people point the fingers at the number of things that McLaren are involved with. Formula E teams, extreme E teams, IndyCar teams, the road car business, the applied technology business, all of these different things which a lot of people assume or at least make the connection with the lowering of performance on what used to be the core business, Formula One. Are McLaren suffering in Formula 1 because they have spread themselves so thinly, with so many different things on their plate, can they give enough focus to the one thing that Formula 1 fans care about? And that's the Formula 1 team. Now that reputation, if that's what it grows to be, may or may not be justified. But the fact that people start talking about it gives it at least some credibility in the eyes of other people. And the word starts to spread. These stories begin to bubble up around the Internet. And they're the kind of thing that can erupt quite quickly into a backlash against a team that might be struggling. And they might be struggling for reasons entirely unconnected to any of those assumptions that people make. But ultimately, if your performance begins to tail away, people will look for reasons for it. And even though it may be jumping to some conclusions, if we're trying to do too many things in a time frame or on a budget or on a scale that makes it unfeasible to do, or at least seemingly unfeasible to do, it can start to change the way people think about us. And the way people think about us can have a knock-on effect to our business, to our companies. Because if they think a certain way, if people start to believe things they're reading on the internet, they're hearing people talk about, they may no longer want to do business with us. If standards are something that are important to us, and if we take Formula One teams as an example, standards are everything. Standards are how we measure our performance, Our performance is literally measured in points. There is a numerical scale that tells us how well we've performed. It's very public. It's easily measurable and it's measurable in direct comparison to our competitors. So if standards are important to us or our companies and businesses, we might need to think about how we give enough focus to those standards. And it may well be that lowering the number of things that we're trying to achieve or giving ourselves a greater time span to achieve them, giving us more resource to throw at them may well be something we have to consider. And that's not just for business, that's for our personal lives too. Of course, the flip side of other people judging our performance and judging the reasons for our performance or lack thereof is that often people judge us by their own standards, not by ours. They judge us by the way they would approach a particular challenge rather than the way that we feel is the right way for us to approach it. And if we go back to that McLaren example, there's an incredibly high chance that McLaren's current performance level, the fact they've struggled a little bit in 2022, is absolutely nothing to do with all of the other extracurricular activities that business and that organisation is taking on. They have separate departments. It's a completely different part of the organisation running the Formula One team than is building road cars, for example. The Formula E team, completely separate. The Extreme E team, completely separate again. These are separate entities within a large organisation that has enough scope and resource, hopefully, to be able to compete on every single one of those different functions at the massively high standards that McLaren are known for. Lewis Hamilton is another great example of this. How many people, how many stories have been written over the years about Lewis Hamilton compromising his Formula One ability by flying off around the world, taking part in fashion shows, visiting awards ceremonies, appearing on television in America, disappearing all over the place on his own private jet climbing mountains, skydiving, learning musical instruments, appearing in movies, recording music or buying sports franchises. How many people have pointed the finger at Lewis for doing all of those different things and then criticise him, accuse him of taking his focus off the ball of Formula 1, of losing sight of the main goal? How can he possibly be as dedicated to Formula One as he has been in the past if he's now doing all of these different things? And I have no doubt that many people watching from afar may well apply all of those same arguments to his loss of performance, the team's loss of performance, the fact that he's not running away with a championship this year in 2022. We know experts within the field, fans, genuine fans of this sport, We know that that's not the case. We know that Mercedes don't have a car capable of challenging the likes of Red Bull or Ferrari at the moment. But if you just look at the timesheets, if you just look at the stats surrounding 2022's Formula One season, Lewis Hamilton has dropped way down the order from where he's been for the last seven or eight years. But actually, Lewis Hamilton has found a balance in his life that allows him to dedicate the amount of time that he needs to focus on Formula One. And let's make no mistake here, he is the most successful driver of all time in the history of this sport. He hasn't done that by compromising the amount of time he's able to give to Formula One to go off and do these other activities that he enjoys doing. He's used those other activities, those extracurricular activities that he gets involved with as a means to support his Formula One activities. And I mean that in terms of supporting those activities by giving him the space and the freedom to relax when he leaves the pit lane, to get away from this intense world of F1 and go and put some focus and some time into something completely different, to clear his mind of Formula One, to allow him, when he comes back into the pit lane for the next Grand Prix, to have enough spare capacity, enough space to then zone in in that intense level of detail that I know, particularly from my experience of working with him, that he gives every single part of that job. For many other people, there may be no way that they could achieve anywhere near as much as Lewis Hamilton to the same levels that Lewis Hamilton achieves it. Yet for him, he's found a way to make it work. He's found the sweet spot within his life to give him the happiness and joy that he takes from these extracurricular activities that he's found that he likes to do in his life and still give him enough capacity to dedicate enough of his life to his craft of being a Formula One driver. He's found that balance that works for him. And that ultimately is the key to all of this. For all of the things that I've described in this particular podcast, some of them might work for me. Different ones will work for you. Some that I've not even touched on will work for you. Some of the things that I have said that will work for me might be completely alien to you as a concept. You might be listening thinking that's nonsense. It's not nonsense because it works for me. It is the solution for me. The process that I went through this weekend was just a little bit of an eye-opening experience for me because it was a stark reminder that Patience can offer so much value in our lives. Trying to do too much too quickly can often mean that we don't do any of those things well enough. That we compromise on everything rather than being uncompromising when it comes to our standards. We shouldn't compromise our standards where those standards are important to us. High performance, whether it's in Formula One or in our daily lives, comes from having a clear understanding, a full knowledge of what we want to achieve. Then we look at the timeframes that we want to achieve it in. We look at the resource that we have available to us to achieve those things, and we look at the standards that we want to achieve them to. And after we've figured out the answers to all of those questions, we have to ask ourselves, does it look like that's achievable? And if the answer is yes, then great, we're onto a winner. We go ahead and we action that plan. We execute. But in so many cases, it doesn't look achievable. And that's where the problems start creeping in. Because what we have to do in that type of situation is take the answers that we came up with from those questions I posed earlier on. What do we want to achieve? How many things do we want to achieve? What standards do we want to achieve them to? What are the timeframes we've got? And how much resource have we got available to us to do those things? We take all of those answers and we ask ourselves if it doesn't look achievable, which one of those answers is movable? Which one of those can we compromise on? If we don't want to compromise on standards, is there one of those things that we can reassess to make this workable? In the world of Formula One, particularly in the era pre budget cap, the era that I came through Formula One in, particularly. Towards the end of the tobacco-sponsored era, there was so much money in the sport that if we needed some more, if we were in a tight championship battle and we needed more money, we'd run out of budget, we'd just go and ask for some more. And our sponsors would give us more money. We'd continue to throw resource at the problem to make sure that we still achieved all of those targets that we were trying to hit. We kept standards high, we achieved the things we wanted to achieve, we did it in the timeframes that we'd set ourselves the variable, the thing that we had to change, was the resource that we could throw at it. We'd put more money in to allow us to achieve all of the other targets that we'd set. Now, we can't always do that in our own lives. We don't have unlimited resources to throw at problems. But perhaps in your case, you can lower the number of things you're trying to achieve, offload a couple of things from your plate, bump them down the priority list. Maybe it's okay on certain situations to to lower your standards, and maybe that's how you make the whole thing work. Or maybe, even though my example I gave you at the start of this podcast may not be a serious problem, maybe a little bit like that you can change the time frame that you're working towards. You may not get that instant gratification. You might have to be a little bit more patient than the modern world would like us to be, But if you can get there in the end, maybe that's the way to achieve it. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening all the way through this podcast. I really do appreciate it. Please show me some love by liking, subscribing, following. Please give me a rating and a review in the Apple Podcast Store. I would really appreciate it. I'm now going off to bed. Whatever it is you guys are up to over a course of the next week, try and remember this. Do the right things. Do the things right.